Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode. This is Mushroom Foraging Part 2. Part 1 was last Saturday. This episode originally published September 17th, 2020. Here you go. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's part two of Mushroom Foraging. We, we started going into the woods, and we got lost, and <laughs> uh, so we had, to, we had to say, you know what, this is actually two episodes. Here we are again with part two. All right, let's jump right in. So we already talked about how mushroom hunting appears to be this really popular activity in Russia, and this goes way back. And it's so popular that there are these common media stories about people getting lost in the wilderness because they went into a trance while mushroom hunting, and then they couldn't find their way home. Uh, but apparently things are very similar in Poland. Uh, it's also a very common activity to go mushroom hunting in Poland. And uh, the Polish romantic poet Adam Mickiewicz, who lived from 1798 to 1855, wrote famously about mushroom foraging in his epic poem Pan to Deusch. And uh, so I, I was uh, looking at this uh, in a few different translations. I think the clearest one, unfortunately, doesn't go for the whole poetry and meter of it. It's a prose translation by George Rapal Noyes, but uh, I think this will give the best sense of the passage, maybe losing a bit of the music. Are you ready, Robert? Let's do it. Okay. So there are these characters who uh, – the basic drama of uh, Pantadeusch is about this conflict between these clans over some kind of real estate dispute. I, I've never read the whole thing, but I like the parts I have read. And, and so it's got all these uh, these fancy ladies and, and lads going out to hunt for mushrooms in the forest, and they've announced that you know whichever lad finds the, the fanciest mushroom will get to sit next to the prettiest girl in the castle, and it's that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, and so it, it goes into the section on mushrooms, quote, of mushrooms, there were plenty. The lads gathered the fair cheeked fox mushrooms so famous in the Lithuanian songs as the emblem of maidenhood for the worms do not eat them. And marvelous to say, no insect alights on them. The young ladies hunted for the slender pine lover, which the song calls the colonel of the mushrooms. And that's colonel like the military rank, not like the mm. popcorn. Uh, I, I don't know why it wouldn't be the general of mushrooms, but uh, moving on. All were eager for the orange agaric. This, though of more modest stature and less famous in song, is still the most delicious, whether fresh or salted, whether in autumn or in winter. But the seneschal gathered the toadstool flybane. The remainder of the mushroom family are despised because they are injurious or of poor flavor, but they are not useless. They give food to beasts and shelter to insects, and are an ornament to the groves. On the green cloth of the meadows they rise up like lines of table dishes. Here are the leaf mushrooms with their rounded borders, silver, yellow, and red, like little glasses filled with various sorts of wine. The kozlak, like the bulging bottom of an upturned cup. The funnels, like slender champagne glasses. The round, white, broad, flat whiteies, like china coffee cups filled with milk. And the round puffball, filled with a blackish dust, like a pepper shaker. 
The names of the others are known only in the language of hares or wolves. By men they have not been christened, but they are innumerable. No one deigns to touch the wolf or hare varieties, but whenever a person bends down to them, he straightway perceives his mistake, grows angry, and breaks the mushroom or kicks it with his foot. In thus defiling the grass, he acts with great indiscretion. <laughs> <laughs> I like at the end there, uh, he gets a little bit offended on behalf of the grass, I guess. I'm not sure I, I fully understand the meaning of that last statement. Uh, but I wanted to look at a couple of things about this passage. Um, so one is that, first, while, while Russian and Polish cultures are considered to have a great affinity for mushrooms, making them generally mycophilic in some terminology that we'll address a l little bit later in the episode. Uh, th this doesn't, of course, manifest as a love for all mushrooms unqualified. Instead, it seems to me that the mushroom-loving culture actually has a highly discriminating eye for mushrooms, noticing much more the important and perhaps life-saving differences between varieties. So like a mushroom culture doesn't just love mushrooms. It's more like they really love the good ones and really hate the bad ones. <laughs> Uh, but of course, uh, plenty of mushroom hunting and accidental mushroom poisoning happens even in the modern era in Poland. I was looking at a scientific report compiling cases of mushroom poisoning in Poland from the years 1962 to 1967 by an author named Eliza Lewandowska. And this was called Mushroom Poisoning in Poland in the Years 1962-67, to 67, Species of Poisonous Fungi. Now, there's no surprise at all here that the species representing the most danger was our old friend Amanita phalloides, or the death cap mushroom. We, we've talked about this already, right? Yes. Now, this one was responsible for at least 461 cases of poisoning and 126 deaths by this survey. Uh, a commonly cited figure that I've seen elsewhere is that death caps today represent more than 90% of fatal mushroom poisonings worldwide. So, so they're the real bad boy in terms of accidental, accidental mushroom poisoning. Um, but I was also reading about how the specific way that Amanita phalloides kills is deceptively devious. So when somebody eats this mushroom, it's not necessarily what you would picture where you eat it and then you're immediately doubled over in pain and, you know, mm -hmm. and hallucinating and sweating with a fever and screaming. Instead, when somebody eats the, the Amanita phalloides, it doesn't necessarily cause any immediate pain or discomfort. In fact, People often don't have any symptoms at all for many hours. I've read sometimes maybe six hours later, sometimes even not until like a full day later. And then the cramps and the nausea and the vomiting and the diarrhea set in. And I've read that this can make it easy to mistake the poisoning for something else. You might think you've got a stomach bug or whatever uh, because of the length of time between eating the mushroom and the onset of symptoms. And uh, and at this point, after the symptoms set in, they can sometimes even retreat. They can grow milder if the patient is properly cared for, properly hydrated and all that. The entire time, the amanita toxins are in the background just massacring cells in the liver and harming the kidneys, eventually leading to organ failure and eventually to death. And I, I don't know, there, there's there's something kind of especially terrifying about that, that there is this you can have this false sense that things are getting better and that, oh, I'm actually feeling a little bit better than I was earlier, or maybe I'm not even feeling bad at all while the mushroom is actively killing your vital organs. 
I think it also underlines just the sort of precision that had to take place in figuring out the properties of various mushrooms and and other organisms in one's environment, you know, because uh, this is clearly something where it, you it, you would have to do uh, a little detective work to figure out it, yeah, exactly what had caused this awful illness in the individual. Exactly. Uh, but uh, in, in second place for poisonings was a species that is also interesting and, and requires a similar kind of precision, but with a different difficulty. Uh, I don't think we've talked about this one yet. Uh, the, the second place in the Polish survey for, for most poisoning and death was Gyrometra esculenta, or the false moral mushroom. Uh, that's moral like M-O-R-E-L, moral mushrooms, not morals mm, as yes. in, you know, uh, doing good. Yeah, like um, morel, yeah. Yeah, and so in this survey, the, the false morel was responsible for 164 cases of poisoning and 10 deaths in this uh, time in the 60s. Now, the false morel is a very strange and interesting case study in fungal toxicity because, first of all, it looks crazy. It looks like a brain on a stick or not even a normal brain. It looks like if you tried to make a raisin out of a brain. Yeah, it, it kind of looks like what if mushroom but ground chuck, you know, it <laughs> has that kind yeah. of appearance. Yeah, it's got the little uh, grinder extrusion patterns. Oof. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. It, it looks kind of like it's come out of a machine in a way. I agree. Yeah, an extruded kind of uh, appearance to it. But a lot of delicious mushrooms look very strange and very unlike other foods we eat. So, you know, th th that's fine. Yeah. Um, but but Gyrometra is an interesting case because the toxicity seems to vary a lot. Uh, just one example I was reading in a Stat Pearls entry by Horowitz, Kong, and Horowitz. And the authors report, quote, most poisonings occur in Eastern Europe, particularly in the conifer forests of Germany, Poland, and Finland. In North America, most exposures occur in Michigan, although a less toxic variety grows west of the Rockies and has been clustered in Idaho and Western Canada. Exposures occur mostly in the spring, unlike other serious mushroom poisonings, such as Amanita phylloides, which occur more commonly in in the fall. Uh, so th there's this geographical distribution. I've read about how there are different rates of poisoning from the false morel, depending on where the mushroom was grown, you know, in, in different countries and at different altitudes and things like that. It seems to vary a lot uh, depending on, you know, what local strain you're getting and possibly due to interactions with, you know, with the, ho the, the body of the person who eats it. Uh, another thing I've read is that poisonings here are much more common when these mushrooms are eaten raw. Now, there's one thing that poison control authorities often emphasize, which is that you should not use intuitive smell and taste senses to figure out what is poisonous in the mushroom world. Because even though our senses of smell and taste are certainly evolved to help us figure out what's good to eat, they are not an infallible guide. And a great example of this is, once again, the death cap mushroom, one of the most dangerous mushrooms to humans and the most deadly one in Poland during that survey we were just talking about. The death cap mushroom does not taste like poison. It reportedly does not taste bitter, does not taste sour, does not you know, set your mouth on fire with needles going into your tongue. In fact, it is widely said to be absolutely delicious. There are people who have had these hepatotoxic mushrooms absolutely destroy their liver 
But they report that, you know, before the pain and the nausea set in six hours later, 24 hours later, when it, whenever it is, while they're eating these mushrooms, they are some of the best tasting mushrooms that they've ever had. Uh, they're said to smell sweet like honey and taste absolutely delightful sautéed in butter. Don't mm. do this. Don't. It's not worth it. It will kill you. Do not take the death cap challenge if you see something <laughs> like that on YouTube. No, not at all. Uh, but but this does bring me back to an interesting observation from uh, Miskovich, which is that some of the species of mushroom that are detestable to humankind, and I'm sure the death cap is one of these in, in his survey, they're known in the cultures of what he calls the wolves or the hares, you know, the language of wolves or, or rabbits. Now, you might think that this is just another folktale about the animals of the forest, but I think that this could actually be based on real observation. Because uh, despite being one of the most deadly fungi to humans, it is not necessarily deadly to everything in the forest all of the time. Uh, I came across one statement about this when I was reading an article about the spread of the deathcap mushroom throughout North America. And this was by Craig Childs in The Atlantic. Uh, it's a very interesting article. It's worth reading. Uh, Childs talks about how deathcap mushrooms naturally live in a symbiotic relationship with host trees. And we've talked about how several mushroom species are like this. They attach themselves to the roots of trees and they sort of trade resources between them. Uh, and so they're able to get some nutrition from, from tree roots. And this is the reason that you will often find them sort of in a ring of deadly fruiting bodies around the roots of a central tree trunk. But their spores don't naturally tend to spread very far, at least under normal circumstances. And it has taken human intervention to really set them spreading far and wide. Specifically, what's named by Craig Childs in this article is that deathcap mushrooms have been spreaded, uh, spreading rapidly throughout uh, northwest North America, riding along on the roots of imported European trees, like imported sweet chestnut trees and beech trees. So you get this fancy tree from Europe. It's got deathcap mushrooms in a relationship with it. You bring the tree over here, plant it, and it brings the poisonous mushrooms with it. Uh, but anyway, uh, th the reason I brought this article up was that there's this quick side note where Childs mentions that uh, that squirrels and rabbits have sometimes been observed to eat deathcap mushrooms without being harmed at all, which sounds again like like Mitskevich, like mm -hmm. uh, that you know the hares don't really mind the mushrooms that the humans find absolutely detestable. And uh, so I think that's interesting. It's another indication of what you should not do. You should not watch what animals eat in the forest to determine what would be okay for you to eat because they may be able to uh, digest and metabolize stuff just fine that would absolutely kill you with just a few mouthfuls. And also in this, just another reason to respect the mighty squirrel. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I saw squirrels were thrown in there too, so I'm sure our, our fans are going to and go hog wild about that squirrel meme wild. away wild. just yeah yeah <laughs> uh, meme, meme till you drop uh, <laughs> but w one last thing i wanted to add about this was uh, i saw some mushroom enthusiasts online just in comment sections and stuff saying that they kind of wish they had whatever resistance these uh, rabbits have to, to the death cap toxicity is because they would love to taste them for once since you know by all accounts when people eat them even though it kills them they are very tasty Interesting, huh? Um, you know, uh, in our previous episode, we mentioned we mentioned a few different um, mushroom foraging cultures, and I believe Scottish culture came up. Uh, as luck would have it, 
was watching uh, um, the, uh, the the TV adaptation of Outlander last night. Uh, really? Watching that, yeah. And in the second episode, what happens? They're foraging for mushrooms. <laughs> uh, talking about the, the medicinal use of mushrooms and which ones are good to eat and which ones are poisonous. Uh, I found it uh, rather interesting. Also, castle they use in that show, mm-hmm. same castle they used in Highlander. Really? Uh, and in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So it's got that going for it. So even in your ultimate kilt lifter narrative, you cannot escape a good mushroom hunt. <laughs> uh, right. I mean, that's. I mean, you got time travel in there, so it's a. Uh, it's it's a big part of the plot, apparently. Yeah. Uh, as, at least as, as I can gather thus far. Well, whether you're time traveling or not, or whether you forage for mushrooms or not, stay away from the death caps. Just just don't even try it. Now, of course, this is this goes way back. This this basic um, uh, reality that we're discussing here, and we've we've covered humanity's hunter gatherer past uh, on the show before. Uh, I mean, the basic is you know we're we're omnivores, and mushrooms have always been on the table. Uh, though, of course, our ancestors had to devise the expertise to avoid harmful species, as well as figuring out which ones are beneficial, which ones can be food, etc. Right. One of the resources we were looking at uh, for this section was Eric Boa's Wild Edible Fungi, a global overview of their use and importance to people. Yeah, it looks like this was a report compiled for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN in 2004. Yeah. And uh, and Boa points out, uh, I'm going to mention a few different uh, facts he points out here. First of all, wild edible fungi are collected for food in more than 80 countries, and we're dealing with more than uh, 1,100 species. And interestingly enough, some cultures may be viewed as mycophobic, being you know, meaning there's a, a a fear of mushrooms or a reluctance to engage in mushroom consumption and, and foraging, while other cultures are um, are mycophilic, meaning you know, lo- the loving mushrooms, uh, you know, being open to those experiences and those quests. With English culture standing, interestingly enough, as an example of, of mycophobic. Uh, culture, while Chinese culture, uh, he he mentions, uh, is uh, a strongly mycophilic uh, culture. He points out that a lot of Chinese writings on mushrooms have yet to be translated, but there's a lot of material there. Now, I found this very interesting because I've, I've certainly seen some documentaries um, that really focus in on on British and Scottish traditions regarding mushroom hunting. Yeah, and of course that highlights that uh, these designations. I, I've seen these designations used by other people as well. Bertelson talks about this, where mm-hmm. you know cultures that are predominantly mycophobic or mycophilic, they're all going to be relative, right? Like within each of these broad cultures, there will be subcultures and individuals that sort of run against the grain, right? Um, but on the note of, uh, of of Chinese culture being mycophilic, uh, of course that comes through in in certain types of ancient medical practices, but also in cuisine and uh, I just think about one of my earliest memories of Chinese food. I, I've loved Chinese food as long as I can remember, but one of my earliest memories is of uh, the unidentifiable fungus within the Chinese soup I was eating and how much I loved it and how mm-hmm. how it, it was like th- there was nothing else like this in my diet. I guess it was probably a type of black fungus in a hot and sour soup. And I was just like, what is this? I have no idea. It's like something from another planet and it's delicious. <laughs> That's awesome. But as to mycophobia, uh, Bertelson mentions evidence of, of strains of mycophobic thinking in many of the historic common names for mushrooms in some European cultures. For example, though, today we think of French cuisine as being very, very pro-mushroom. Uh, historically, yeah. there was some French aversion to mushrooms, uh, like calling mushrooms things like eggs of the devil or the <laughs> devil's paintbrush or toad's bread. 
Uh, of course, there's the English expression toadstool. In Danish and Norwegian, you have variations on padahat, toad's hat. And in Germanic and Celtic cultures, Bertelsen writes that you sometimes see an association between mushrooms and witchcraft. And this association may have played a role in keeping the British Isles relatively mycophobic for, for many centuries. Huh. You know, I can't help but be reminded. I'm sure I've brought this up on the show before. Um, but uh, there's that, that wonderful um, little bit in uh, Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, where there's a story of, of one monk. You know, it's like a multi-cultural, multi, uh, uh, multilinguistic uh, community of monks there. And one is talking about having this pig that will accompany them into the woods to search for uh, truffles. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the other monk that's hearing this story is, I believe, German. And he thinks that he's not saying truffle, but tufel, which is uh, German for devil. So he thinks this is a <laughs> horrific story of this weird pig that will accompany uh, you into the woods so that you can seek out the devil. I remember that moment, and that's, uh, oh man, that's so emblematic of everything I love about Name of the Rose. <laughs> now, in, in terms of, um, of the ancient uh, uh, foraging for mushrooms and the, the use of mushrooms by, by human beings, you know, there's, there's apparently evidence uh, in what is now Chile of mushroom consumption by humans 13,000 years ago. Um, Otzi the Iceman, who we've mentioned on the show before, who lived uh, between 3400 and 3100 B.C., uh, somewhere in that area, was found with two varieties of fungi uh, on his person, uh, one of which we've discussed on our other show or previous other show, Invention, was likely a dried fungi used to help start fires. But the other was a birch fungus that was likely consumed for medicinal reasons. Mm. And so the, the consumption of mushrooms for culinary and or medicinal purposes dates back in a number of ancient cultures. There's, there are more examples of this than we could you know, easily cover on the, the show here. Uh, and, and with the agricultural revolution came the eventuality of mushroom cultivation as well, though as we previously touched on, there are so many varieties that are resistant to cultivation. Yeah, I think specifically a lot of the ones that you think of that are most commonly used in food that are the hardest to cultivate are are the ones uh, that are, for mycorrhizal reasons, unable to to be cultivated because they exist in these symbiotic relationships with other plants, trees, and forest atmospheres. And and so the truffle is a common example. Uh, But of course, chanterelles are like this as well. I believe also porcini mushrooms uh, that it's just really hard to recreate the conditions in which they arise. Yeah. So even as as humanity inevitably be, you know, began this shift, uh, this revolution in Neolithic times, uh, shifting away from the hunter-gatherer existence to one dependent on intensive agriculture, there's kind of this you know, this tendency to sort of think of that as, okay, well, you know, you're, you're just changing the way you live entirely. You're, you're just stopping where you are, and now you're going to grow plants. And maybe mushroom foraging is one of those things that remains outside of that tradition for these very reasons we've been discussing. Um, however, uh, th- this was quite interesting. I was looking around for resources on this, and I ran across uh, a paper published in the Royal Society B by Curtis W. Uh, uh, Marine, titled The Transition to Foraging for Dense and Predictable Resources and Its Impact on the Evolution of Modern Humans. And in this, uh, uh, the, the author um, is discussing you know, the, this basic shift, but he points out, they point out that there's another shift to consider. Quote, the foraging shift to dense and predictable resources is another key milestone that had consequential impacts on the later part of human evolution. 
Now, the basic idea here is that there wasn't just this sudden shift from hunting and gathering to cultivation. And there are many hypothesized explanations for this. But Marine argues that hunting and gathering would have seen an increased focus on dense and predictable resources. As such, this also means that a given area becomes increasingly worth defending and staking a claim to. Oh, this is interesting. So this could be the the transition point between um, between people who just roam about following resources and consuming them wherever they can be found. That and then on the other hand, having farmland in between, you could have places where there are naturally high density resources that can be exploited over and over that you might not be quite farming yet, but might be worth defending as a stable territory. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have to admit, I hadn't really thought about this before. I, Without giving it a lot of thought, I always just kind of, you know, had this this inaccurate picture in my mind that was, again, like, okay, we're not hunter-gatherers anymore. Let's start growing this corn, why don't we? You know, like, I don't, I didn't really think about uh, some of the potential, uh, you know, for, for areas in between. This would be very interesting to explore paired with something that came up in our invention episodes on bread and toast, where we talked about the studies indicating that bread may actually have been invented before grain was, was an agricultural product. Like, people may have been making, and I think the archaeological logical evidence is that people were making bread from wild grains and wild grasses before they had farms and wheat. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me wonder if they were getting these grains from some kind of like location where there were a lot of them growing together and could be exploited over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, Marine writes to just sum all this up, quote, I hypothesize that the origin population for modern humans made this shift to dense and predictable resources and thus was subject to high levels of territoriality and intergroup conflict, which provided the selection regime for high levels of cooperation with unrelated individuals within one's group. The downstream effect was that all uh, modern humans inherited these hyper prosocial proclivities that are unique to our species. Now, to bring this back to mushroom foraging, it is interesting to process one's thoughts about the predictable times and places one will find, say, chanterelles or hen of the woods, and the competitive feelings that, that may force, uh, we may be forced to confront during this. In fact, I understand that more serious mushroom foragers are, you know, they're loath to reveal the secrets, uh, uh, their secret places, their quote-unquote honey spots, uh, the places where they can dependably find the best patches of mushroom. Do you remember the story in Michael Pollan's book where he's going uh, hunting for psilocybin mushrooms with Paul Stamets and he's going to great pains to try to tell you what he's doing without revealing the site of Paul Stamets' uh, mushroom patch? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. This Paul really doesn't want people to know where he gets them. That's his honey spot. <laughs> Now, I think, though, that you can certainly see that with plants especially, how this could be this intermediary zone uh, between hunting and gathering and cultivation, where you realize, oh, well, the, 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 the wheat that we can make into bread, it grows really well here. Uh, this is a, a place that we need to keep secret or even protect from other, other individuals. This is our spot. This is our sacred spot that we return to. It's a very interesting possibility. I wonder what, what would be the evidence that you could find to back that up. I don't know. I'll have to keep thinking about that. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. Now, another interesting uh, topic to, to consider in all of this is that, uh, that there is essentially a foraging gene. 
so the, the key gene of note in most uh, studies, especially with, with fruit flies, in fruit flies it's uh, PRKG1. Uh, and uh, this is um, this is something that we see uh, presented in a wide variety of, of animals, from fruit flies to even humans. But PRKG1 is present in fruit flies and has previously been shown to influence foraging behaviors. Researchers and studies that I think date back to at least uh, 1980 have looked at this, and multiple researchers found that one variant of the gene in fruit flies induces what is called sitter behavior, and in the others, rover behavior. Now, the difference here is that when a sitter enters an area containing fruit, the, uh, they scout the perimeter of the area, and then they move inward. They sort of, you know, they scout it out, they make a perimeter, and then they move in. Rovers instead move right in and go for the first fruit they encounter. Interesting. Now, the human form of the gene is apparently a nucleotide polymorphism genotype called RS13499. And in 2019, uh, researchers from Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., this would be struck at all, um, they experimented with it in a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Uh, the title is Self-Regulation and the Foraging Gene, PRKG1 in Humans. Uh, here's how the study went down. So the authors analyzed the genotypes of RS13499 in 437 undergraduate students who performed two virtual foraging tasks. So this was a touchscreen situation in which subjects searched for and collected as many red berries as possible within five minutes. And then they, so they compared the subjects uh, with CA or CC genotypes of RS13499. Uh, individuals with the AA genotype were more likely to hug the boundary of the search environment, pick smaller berries, and stop to pick berries in patches with fewer visible berries, a.k.a. sitter behavior. The findings suggest that the AA genotype is associated with a search strategy that restricts exploration and exploits the local environment extensively. In other words, distinct patterns of goal pursuit or foraging are associated with particular genotypes of PRKG1. That's very interesting. Now, as we've talked about on the show before, you always have to remember when you're drawing correlations between particular gene variants and a behavior, it's it's almost never going to be like an on-off switch that like if you have a right. certain gene variant, you show X behavior, and if you don't have it, you don't. But instead, you, you'd be charting sort of like, you know, percentages of influence. Can can you see correlations between gene variants and a, and a tendency or a certain proclivity to a certain type of behavior? And uh, and so yeah, th this would say that s somehow foraging behaviors are downstream from things that this gene does to the brain that make you more likely to kind of like go out on a long search versus try to exploit all of the resources you can in your nearest immediate environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now again, of course, we also have to keep in mind the the the, the scope and the size of the study here, but. Um, and also, I should point out that the authors uh, mentioned that the human foraging behavior is ultimately far more complex than the the, uh, the foraging behavior of fruit flies. And instead of there just being two distinct foraging strategies, it seems like there are three. So you have sitter and rover, but then you have a mixed uh, disposition as well that combines elements of both. But on top of that, they point out that, that this would go beyond mere foraging in humans, that, that, it, that it would instead impact human behavior regulation across multiple domains. And I think we can imagine how, yeah, that would involve various things that are like foraging, but also potentially uh, impact just sort of uh, risk assessment, uh, et cetera. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's easy to see how complex modern behaviors are in a way kind of probably uh, minor reconfigurations of traditional instinctual behaviors like foraging, like hunting and that kind of thing. Uh, so, so you can see how whatever we're most instinctually inclined to do in terms of foraging could manifest in the way you accomplish work around the house, in the way that you, you know, go shopping or whatever. I mean, again, you, you have to be careful about drawing too direct of an inference about anything like that. But the fact that there's some kind of influence it, it seems pretty clear. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. Now, another aspect of early human foraging tactics, and indeed the way these these early humans used spatial abilities to gather resources, is that there was seemingly a division of labor between males and females. This is the sexual division of labor, sometimes abbreviated as SDL, um, and, and this is a subject that has received a lot of study over the years, especially uh, of studies that look at extant hunter-gatherer populations in the world. And there are varying hypotheses for the evolutionary origins of this divide. Mm-hmm. Now, for our purposes here, I was looking at a study by uh, Louis uh, Pacheco uh, Cobas, Marcos Rossetti, Cecilia Quantiencoiz, and Robin Hudson, titled Sex Differences in Mushroom Gathering Men Expend More Energy to Obtain Equivalent Benefits. <laughs> and this was published in Evolution and Human Behavior back in 2010. So the authors here pointed out that the evidence was accumulating, quote, that women excel on tasks appropriate to gathering immobile plant resources, while men excel on tasks appropriate to hunting mobile, unpredictable prey. And this would be due, so the thinking goes, to this ancient labor divide in human societies. But it also means that intrinsic foraging abilities and tactics would differ from males to females. So the researchers here decided to put this to the test with a mushroom foraging experiment. Okay. Which is the other key reason to discuss it here because people are, are this is an experiment that in- includes not touchscreen um, uh, practices, not some sort of touchscreen experiment, but an actual foraging for mushrooms. Let's forage. So in their study, they used GPS and heart rate monitors that had been um, affixed to the researchers themselves. And then these researchers would follow 21 pairs of men and women from an indigenous Mexican community in uh, uh, Tlaxcala while foraging for mushrooms in the wild. So the researchers are the ones wearing the gear. They're following the actual foragers. But in doing so, they're going to be able to chart where the foragers went and how much energy seems to be uh, expended in the silent hunt. Okay. So they ultimately measured the costs, the benefits, and the general search efficiency of everyone's movements, and then they analyzed them. The resulting foraging patterns showed that while males and females collected similar quantities of mushrooms, males achieved this at a significantly higher cost. So the males, they traveled farther. The males climbed to greater altitudes. Uh, They had higher mean heart rates and energy expenditures while uh, partaking in the foraging. And in addition, they also collected fewer mushroom species and visited fewer collection sites. And this is interesting. They seemed to focus on large patches of mushrooms, even if these were harder to come by. So they were like bypassing or not even looking for those smaller patches. They wanted wanted to get the big game mushroom patches. <laughs> the females, meanwhile, seemed to know where to go and they foraged uh, f- uh, from many small patches as opposed to seeking out those greater patches of fungi. 
this was also compared, by the way, to previous research on the way males and females navigate, uh, which indicated that males tend to create mental maps and then superimpose their position, while women tend to remember landmarks and memorize the routes. Quote, These findings are consistent with arguments in the literature that differences in spatial ability between the sexes are domain-dependent, with women performing better and more readily adopting search strategies appropriate to a gathering lifestyle than men. So basically, the idea is that if you were primarily charged with hunting prey 2.5 million years ago, it made sense to travel far, to take widening paths in pursuit of that big payoff prey, and then take the shortest, most direct path back home so as to make for up for all that time you spent wandering and pursuing the prey. Meanwhile, if you were tasked with gathering fungi or plants, it would serve to remember where the most productive plant food sources were found, you know, those honey spots, and then retrace your steps exactly so as to take advantage of them in the future. And like, no making a beeline back for camp. That's very interesting. Uh, now, one thing that we always got to say whenever you talk about studies that explore sex differences is that people, mm-hmm. a lot of people like to take these and really run with them and say like, oh, yeah. this means that men are like this and women are like that. I think we always try to caution people not to not to overinterpret findings of sex differences in, in particular studies. Uh, you, it's very easy. I think just because people want to have strong intuitions about gender and sex and like, what men are like and what women are like and stuff that they, they want to say like, Oh, this explains why my husband does this or why my girlfriend says that kind of thing. You can, you can easily go way overboard with, with looking for explanations in that way. Yeah. I mean, it also, it comes down to what is it? The Barnum effect uh, that we've discussed before uh, where we say, Oh, well, that's me. This, this study is correct because that's me. (laughs) I totally am like that when I go to the, to the grocery store and my, my partner is like this, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, like you're saying, like we're talking about general perceived trends in the sexual division of labor and as reflected here in particular studies. Uh, So yeah, don't, don't have it printed on a T-shirt or anything, but uh, but uh, it is interesting research, and and certainly it was neat to find a study that was that was actually involving mushroom foraging, like the scientific study of um, mushroom foraging behavior. Totally, and it highlights how there can be different types of foraging strategies that are effective in different ways. I was looking at some other studies that were about different types of foraging strategies in birds, you know, and how this is kind of Mm -hmm. interesting. Like some birds tend to forage by moving in little random types of motions around a central locus uh, in a way that's very comparable actually to the movement of tiny particles on the atomic scale that's known as Brownian motion in physics. Whereas other birds tended to forage by sort of taking large leaps at a time and that these uh, these different strategies could be differentially effective depending on what types of things you're looking for while foraging, what the surrounding landscape is and things like that. Yeah, it's such a foraging itself is just such a fascinating thing to think about because on, it's easy to just sort of dismiss it as this kind of primal thing that we sometimes engage in when we decide to go into the woods and look for mushrooms, etc. Mm-hmm. But it is, again, something uh, basic like neural activity that we're continually engaging in and and something that also comes down to this kind of like like this the basic mathematics of it. Like, how do you go about looking for resources in a given area? And then how are you how do you deal with spatial awareness in that given area? Like there it seems like a, a rich domain for, uh, you know, AI research and the like. Totally. Because it, strangely enough, I feel like search 
activities are one of the ways in which human behavior can be most closely compared to what computer programs do. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, uh, no, absolutely. Like yeah. that there, there are some pretty direct analogies actually having to do with uh, energy is expended and efficiency and different ways of searching through randomly organized material. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the same way that you could imagine someone you know, desiring an AI program that'll find you a good deal on something, there are also plenty of humans out there who, like, that's their thing. Like, let me let me help you find a good deal on that because I, I love looking for them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it does come back to foraging. I mean, I, I would be interested in studies looking at foraging behaviors in humans and in animals compared to what search engines do to get you your yeah. results. That would be interesting. So who knows? Perhaps we'll have uh, some additional foraging episodes <laughs> in the future as, as you and I go out into the, 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 the wilds <laughs> seeking out uh, uh, fruitful papers on these topics. Bring it on home. All right. Well, we're going to have to call it there. Uh, likewise, we weren't able to touch on everything regarding mushroom foraging and foraging related topics here, but we certainly would love to hear from everyone out there. Um, you know, are, are you involved in, in mushroom foraging? Are you an active forager? Or, or Let us know uh, your experiences. We'd love to hear your insight on all of this. Likewise, if you are, uh, if you're culture of origin or you're, uh, you know, if you're immersed in a particular cultural uh, take on mushroom foraging, be it, you know, the activities or, or beliefs and strategies to tied up with uh, the foraging uh, uh, um, activity, uh, let us know. We'd love to be enlightened on those topics. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 